Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to episode 429 with my guest Leo Flowers. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Third Love. Uh, do you want a comfortable bra? Maybe you don't. Maybe you want something made of, uh, I don't know, burlap, barbed wire. But if you're looking for the most comfortable bra that you've ever worn, uh, check out Third Love. Uh, my girlfriend loves her bra. Says it's the most comfortable bra she's ever worn. Uh, if you want to know more, go to thirdlove.com slash mental now and find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash mental. Uh, my name's Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Uh, yeah, the same name as the, uh, the logo that you clicked on to listen to the show. I don't know why this, I feel the na- the need to say the name of the show. Uh, maybe for those of you that are uh, directionally challenged. Anyway, uh, this is, uh, how do I describe this show? It's, uh, it's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, the show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. I am a jackass, but I, I am a certified jackass. And uh, boy, you should see what that plaque looks like. <laughs> they, they give it to you with mustard stains already on it. How could you possibly get mustard stains on a certificate? I'm sure somebody has somewhere. Anyway, welcome to the show. If this is your first time listening, and please don't leave me. Um, I had the most amazing support group meeting last night. It was one of those meetings where everybody leaves and just is, I don't know, maybe I should just speak for myself, but it was... There were tears, there was laughter. You could see the deep, deep friendships that had formed between 
the people there, uh, myself included. And, and I wanted, I didn't get to share during the meeting. Um, and I think the old me would have really felt left out or invisible or, you know, I, I would have been feeling those, that old tape playing in my head that, that I'm on the outside. And I just looked around and I thought about all the deep friendships over the years that I've developed with the people there. Um, you know, especially the people that were sharing. And that's growth for me because intellectually I can know I'm not invisible and forgettable, but it's that feeling that comes up, that feeling, that panic, that, that, um, I feel it in my chest, in my arms, in my face. And, uh, I've shared such amazing moments in the last decade with so many of the people in that room. We've been to each other's birthday parties. You know, we've had game nights together. We've, we've gone to funerals together. We've seen people get divorced, become parents, lose parents. And I think the thing that struck me the most was I had seen almost all of these people that were sharing. I, I was one of the people in the room that had been there the longest. And so I had seen these people who were sharing and celebrating years of, of recovery there. I had seen them come in suicidal, hopeless, angry at the universe. And here they were living lives that they loved and more importantly radiating not only love but self-love and it struck me that the basis for those of us who have gotten any degree of self-love in there the basis for so many of us was the friendships that we developed and the trust that we learned, the vulnerability that we had to relearn in there. Because I think all of us as kids were born with that, but then I think a lot of times circumstances, that part of us shuts down to survive. And to see that rekindled in people and to have felt a part of it is just an amazing, an amazing, amazing feeling. Switching gears, I want to read a really depressing uh, little section of a survey. Uh, this was filled out. This is the uh, sexual abuse or violation of a young male by an older female survey. I don't think the name of that survey is long enough. Uh, I think that might be the title of a Fiona album, a Fiona Apple album. Um, this is filled out by a guy who calls himself, uh, sometimes a nobody and he's, uh, straight and in his forties and he was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. And he writes, uh, when I was four, I had an undescended testicle surgically removed. When I asked the doctor if I would have a scar, he told me yes, but it would be covered in hair. I didn't understand it at the time, but knew that when I repeated it, people would laugh. The neighbor would babysit me sometimes, and her sister and other family were there one day while she was watching me. To entertain the crowd, I sang some and then dropped my always funny line about growing hair over it. 
Her sister asked me if she could see it. She led me to the bathroom where she inspected my genitals and touched my penis and scrotum. She then asked me to lick her vagina, which I did. I remember her being very old, but in reality, she was just a 40-year-old chronic smoker. Let that sink in. And why am I picturing one of the sisters from The Simpsons? Um, did you ever tell anyone? I never told anyone because I didn't think anyone cared. I was used to being touched by my uncle, so it didn't seem strange. I think this solidified the idea that I could get attention in exchange for pleasing others sexually. To this day, I hate the smell of, quote, older women. Remembering these things, what feelings come up? It causes me to cry. I think of that little boy, and I am sad, angry, and scared all at once. Do you feel any damage was done? It seemed natural at the time. Even now, at 45, when I know better, I feel like somehow I wanted it and that I should be grateful because men are supposed to embrace anything sexual. I want to let you know that you are not alone, and what you described is really similar to what many of us shared when we first came into that support group meeting that I was talking about. While the circumstances may have been different, the feelings are the same. Feeling like we're stuck. Feeling sad, angry, scared. And blaming ourselves. And I really encourage you to process that by reaching out to a therapist or a support group because A, you deserve it. You deserve to feel that love and support. And you deserve to feel the peace that is probably on the other side of processing that. That's my take. But I'm sending you some love, man. I want to tell you guys about a uh, new podcast that I think is pretty cool. It's called Survival. I've always been fascinated by stories of uh, survival. You know, maybe somebody on a mountaintop having to live in a snow cave, uh, stuff like that. And uh, what would you do to stay alive? Would you would you wade through snake-infested water? Would you drink your own urine? Actually, I drink my own urine just because there are certain foods it pairs very well with. Uh, would you cut your own arm off? Listen, I've done that when I'm bored, and then I sew it back up myself. I make some excuses, and people move on. <laughs> Boy, am I bogging this down. Every Monday, the Podcast Network's podcast, Survival, demonstrates the human spirit's ability to triumph over deadly adversity and examines the lasting psychological effects of living through a traumatic event. Boy, is this podcast aimed at you guys. Uh, you'll hear stories about a pilot and passenger crash landing in the Canadian Yukon in the dead of winter, a man escaping from a North Korean internment camp, people trapped on sinking ships, and many, many more. Survival, how far would you go to stay alive? Search for and subscribe to Survival wherever you listen to podcast shows, and don't forget to rate and review and tell them we sent you.
This uh, podcast is also sponsored by BetterHelp. I've talked many times about uh, BetterHelp and what a big fan I am of their online therapy. I do it every week and I love not having to leave my house. And more importantly, I love and trust my therapist. So I'm a huge fan. And if you want to try it out, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so that they know that you are coming from this podcast. Uh, fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if, uh, if it's a good fit for you and you need to be over 18. And you can also, uh, if you don't want to do video with your therapist, you can do email or live text or chat or phone even. Uh, and one more, this is so beautiful, one more survey before we get to the interview with, with Leo. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Scott Nomates. And he writes, My life hit a barren crossroads one Sunday when I was in my 20s. The phone woke me before 4 a.m. My girlfriend of six years was calling from Paris to tell me that she'd been fucking her boss while they were on their, quote, work trip, and she wanted me to move out before they got back. She delivered the news like she was reminding me to pick up butter. It was her house and her rules. She was 10 years older than me, and she'd been distant for some time. I started packing before the sun came up. After sunrise, my girlfriend's mom phoned to say that her husband, my girlfriend's emotionally malnourished and stoic father, had been taken to hospital during the night. It wasn't the flu. It was cancer in its advanced stages. She said he was in pain and asked if I could go to the hospital and massage him. Massage was my day job, and I did my best to say yes to any request. It was no secret that I loved the cranky old bastard, but massaging his slack gray skin while he labored to breathe in his oxygen mask was fucked up. I'd only been back from the hospital for a few minutes when the phone rang again. I thought twice about answering it, but the incessant analog bell had more weight in the days before cell phones and the internet. It was one of my massage clients calling. Phoning on a Sunday? On the home phone? He didn't know who else to call. He was on remand, I don't even know what that means, and had been charged with sexually abusing his seven-year-old son. I realized I was about to be crushed by a fucking tsunami of self-pity when I saw, through the kitchen window, a swamp harrier. Again, don't even know what that is. A kind of eagle. It was hanging there, almost motionless in the backyard, held aloft by a stiff westerly breeze. A pair of tiny wagtail birds were dive-bombing it repeatedly and relentlessly about the head. As I watched in breathless wonder, the phone still pressed to my ear, the swamp harrier craned its neck and appeared to look through the kitchen window at me. It looked me right in the eyes. It felt like he was looking right through me. With a tilt of its wings, it was gone, soaring out of sight over the roof of the house, but it left me with such a strong feeling of grace under fire. I felt infected with its poise. The tsunami of self-pity turned out to be a puddle I could step over. I really listened to the guy on the phone and heard his pain. There was nothing more I could do. I massaged the old man until he died and spoke at his funeral. There was nothing more I could do. And as my ex arrived home from Europe, I tilted my wings and was gone. Nobody's, Nobody's cool, cool and everyone's scared. scared. And, and we're, we're just all in this together. together. 
There was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks were so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a second hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. I'm one out. You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm going to stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to be here. I'm going to help you one day. People are going to love you for that. It takes a lot of work to heal. It's hard being a weird kid. Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not looking for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with Leo Flowers, and we met through a mutual friend, uh, Murray Valeriano, uh, who is a good friend hilarious guy, great podcaster. Uh, he does Road Stories uh, podcast. But he said, you should have uh, my friend Leo Flowers on. He's a fellow stand-up comic. And he talks very openly about uh, suicide and uh, other heavy shit. And uh, I said, fuck him. <laughs> and Murray said, no, hear me out. And I said, no, fuck him. His last name sounds soft. Flowers? I don't need that on my podcast. <laughs> and he said, no, he's a brother. And I went, nah, all right, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll roll the dice. Let's see what this fuck has to say. Uh, no, if we, we, uh, I think are definitely kindred spirits, uh, oh, yeah. from the brief conversation we had at, at Murray's and just knowing your, um, your background and the fact that you talk openly about, suicide and other other stuff like that i I think you you have i mean it's so funny that uh it's we got the car alarm going off in the background that you know in our society you can talk about how great your life is and how wonderful things are and at no point can you ever just be like i'm fucking miserable yeah i'm just like i am dying on the inside i'm dying on the inside it's a slow decay I'm ready to blow my brains out. I'm shopping for bridges. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Wait, did you hear about the guy who jumped off the bridge? uh, I think the Bay Bridge and hits the water, doesn't die. Right. And then a shark starts to circle him. No. And is and now he's like now he's fighting for For his his life. life, Right. Of course. Right. That's how life is. Because we want it on our terms. We want it on our terms. He's like, I I can't go out like this. And and it's just circling, circling, circling. And uh the the guy is kind of paralyzed. He can't move because you know the impact of hitting the water. Um turns out it was a uh a sea lion that was circling him and because the sea lion was doing that it was keeping his body afloat until the rescuers came and got him. Wow. And he tells a story. And I forget his name because I know you guys are like, that's a crazy story. But uh, you can Google it because this happened like in the past year. And now he's like doing his whole speaking tour and, and wow. talking about that experience. And That's amazing. Um, I, I had a guest on, uh, Kevin Briggs, who is a uh, former um, California Highway Patrol officer. And he patrolled the Golden Gate Bridge for yeah. years. And so he learned how to talk to people who were um, in the process of jumping. And some of them he successfully <clears throat> talked off, and some he wasn't able to. And one of the things he said that every single person shared with him was that they felt like a burden to everybody mm. else, which is the biggest lie. Yeah. Because 
there will always be people that will care about you. There may be some people who are emotionally unable to handle heavy things or complicated emotional feelings, but that doesn't mean everybody is is like that. And the other thing that he shared is, you know, everybody would ask him, what did you say to these people? And he said, I didn't. I just listened. It's so big. And, and that's what most people want. They just want to feel heard. They want to feel validated. They want to feel listened to. Um, and connected. And connected. It's such a huge, you know, uh, I forget the the name of the author. He just wrote a book called Lost Connections. And uh, it's about, you know, because, uh, you know, people are in their iPhones and iPads and uh, in their car, such a car culture everywhere that we're, we're losing connection with people. Um, but really, I think it's more about um, losing connection with yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I, I noticed that when I'm on my cell phone, when I'm on my iPad, when I'm watching TV and then I cut it off, you can immediately feel your body relax. You had no idea how tense you were with the texting and the watching of the, you know, especially like you're watching Ozarks or something that is, you know, very intense. And then when you cut it off, all of a sudden you can, you can feel and hear yourself breathing. Yeah. And you didn't even realize you've been holding it in for that entire time. You know, I, I was just uh, in this sounds so pretentious, but I was just in Europe. Petty. I was in Ireland, Northern Ireland. And then I decided to uh, go to Croatia because it just always looked so inviting. The blue water yeah. and everybody I've talked to said it's affordable and the people are nice. And one of the places that I went to when I was there was a nudist place. And I didn't realize how um, stressed I was until I had all my clothes off and I was floating on a raft in warm water, feeling the sun on my body. And I said to myself, self, you are going to do this every summer for the rest of your life. And because I thought just because I'm not running around freaking out that that doesn't necessarily mean I'm relaxed. I hadn't had a full week off without doing anything work related in 8 years. Mm. And in that moment because I didn't have my phone, because I was just in the moment and in my body and attached to nothing, literally nothing, I felt my body just go to another level of relaxation. And the only other time I had felt that was when I was uh, mountain climbing and I was above the tree line in Mm. um, the Cascade Mountains. Mm. And when you're above the tree line, there's no trees. So there's almost there's essentially no wildlife. And if there's no wind and nobody's talking, it's pure silence. And in that moment, I felt the same thing. I felt something change in my body, like a lower gear that was something that I'd never experienced. Not even through meditation. Not through meditation and not even through a sensory deprivation tank. Absolutely. So what I'm saying is put your phone down, take your clothes off and float. 
apps, you know, that th- it's such a huge thing to be out there in nature um, and disconnected, right? Mm-hmm. So that you can reconnect. Um, I felt that when I went to Lake Tahoe. And uh, I forget the time of the year, but it was it was a slow time. And I, I got up early one morning and I walked out to the lake. And there's no one out there on the lake. And it's and a beautiful it's lake. Beautiful. And it was it was calm. There was no wind. And it's like two minutes after sitting down, I cried. Did you? And it was just this. And it wasn't like, a, <laughs> you know, it was just like, a, like I was that relaxed where it was almost like, now I can, I, I was just, it was just there. Like I didn't even, I didn't feel it coming up at all. It was just like, man, and, tears coming down. And was it like this moment is so, so beautiful. beautiful. It was so quiet. Like, I, I just remember thinking like, oh, I've never experienced quiet before this. Like, you know, you think you, you get in a library or uh, at night, but that, that wilderness Mm-hmm. Lake Tahoe, I, it's undescribable unless you've you've been there. And, and it sounds like you were experiencing external silence and inner silence at the same time. At the same and, time, and your eyes are taken in this beautiful, um, indescribable yeah. Uh, yeah. scenery. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but in those moments, I feel like the universe is giving me a hug. And that I'm, that I am loved on a level that I can't put into words, but I suddenly don't feel alone. And and that's what's fascinating, right? Because you're out there by yourself and you don't feel alone. But, you know, when you're in the city, we're, we're all running around thinking we have to be with someone so that we're not alone. And, and that, and I think that is the cause of a lot of suffering. Is that we're seeking this feeling of connection with other people, and really, it's like, how do you find it within yourself and, and within nature? It's like you got to get outside, yeah, you know. And 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 we're and I'm lucky. I count myself as lucky because I know not everybody has an opportunity to, um, you know, explore for whatever reason. Um, but if if you do have that opportunity, like even just hug a tree. You know, like, like you don't have to be out in the Cascade Mountains or, you know, I was in a Grand Canyon and, and this is why, like, when I go hiking, I don't like to take photos. You can't capture that. You, you, like, you can't capture what it feels like to, to be there. And I don't care what angle or lens or filter, it doesn't do it any justice. Um, and I and I feel like then you're also spending your whole time looking things, looking at things as photo ops instead yeah. of absorbing it. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely, like concerts. I do not understand why people pull their phones out at concerts. It's yeah. just like I want to experience. And it, <laughs> has anybody ever pulled up concert footage no. on their phone and <laughs> right. listen to it? You listen right. to it for yeah. five seconds. You go, wow, yeah. that sound is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The sound is horrible. Exactly. Because the energy of the people, man, it's, but you know, it's like, I feel like we're, we, we, society's going in two different directions. It's like on one hand, we are, uh, people are becoming more isolated. But on the other side, I see people coming together more. Cause like I was at the beach and, uh, 
And now they do these like uh, dances where uh, people put on headphones and they're listening to music, and it's like a a, a si- I forget what they call it, like a a, a a silent dance. So like it, you don't have to have the headphones on to hear, it, but everybody is dancing to the same song. To the same song, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then you got these events like Wonderlust, where thousands of people are signing up to do yoga together, you know, over the weekend and. And, and all these, you know, different retreats and things like that. So I see, I, it's like, it, it's becoming, uh, really extreme where it's like complete isolation on one side with, especially like the video gamers and then people who are just like, you know, camping, going outdoors. Uh, a lot of, I, f- I feel like there's a lot of, um, different meetup groups and, and groups forming and tr- people forming yeah. tribes and things like that. So, uh, it's interesting to see uh, how how we're evolving, and I, I think that brings up a great point, which is always be seeking, always, always be seeking. Um, I I think we tend to do one of two things: we we tend to go to what we know that brings us a certain level of excitement and stimulation, mm-hmm. but ultimately, I think it's distraction from a better choice, which is connection and feeling a part of something larger than ourselves. But we're not taught how to do that. Or maybe you're just, people are just born to be curious and to be seekers. Um, and it, it boils down to that. But I, I always think of that, that quote, uh, where Gandhi said, uh, there is no path to peace. Peace is the path. So I feel like there is no answer. The the answer is seeking the answer. Absolutely. Seeking the answers. Yes. It's along the way that we feel connected and we grow, but we never, I, I don't think we ever have a moment of I've arrived. I've figured it out. You know, it, you know, it's like I, I get uh, massages every couple weeks Um and just scheduling the massage relaxes me. Yeah. Right? Just getting ready to go to the massage relaxes me. Um, I used to feel the same way right? about uh, the drug dealer. The drug Going to see the drug <laughs> yeah. dealer. I would get just a little bit of yeah. a dopamine yeah. high just driving over yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Just, just planning it, just scheduling it, just knowing that you have that thing. E- even if, like, you're like, I don't have the money right now, just, just, Put it in your calendar to go somewhere, you know, in six months or in a year, or two years, whatever. Just writing that down. I mean, you're going to get such a rush from mm-hmm. just thinking about it and having it there. Like I have uh, I have dry erase boards uh, in my bedroom and, I, you know, and I'm, I'm constantly writing quotes and thoughts and ideas and and things that I, I want to keep reaffirming mm-hmm. in, in my mind um, and. And so that it becomes part of my internal dialogue because, you know, what you're thinking is what you've been, uh, you've been, it's, you've been, we're, we're programmable. Mm-hmm. I think the, you know, people who walk around talking about, you know, humans have free will. Yes. But it, if, if you also aren't aware of how music, media, uh, environment, all those things influence how you feel and how you think. Uh, you, you're gonna you're gonna be in before a big surprise, yeah. you know. The cult of stuff. 
absolutely can definitely uh, begin to brainwash you to think that that's where the answer is. And I know that sounds like such a cliche, but I experienced that in my life. It, at, at my most financially successful, I was also at my most suicidal because I had no connection. Mm. And I thought the solution to finding peace was to be impressive and to stand out. And then I wouldn't be forgotten and then I would be okay. But I didn't realize I was separating myself. I was trying to separate myself from the pack and then wondering why I was so lonely. Right. Because the, the, the ego, I think the thought of being one of many to the ego is terrifying. We're either a piece of shit or we're the king. Right. And in reality, we're never either of, of those two. Yeah. It's like well, I went to the Grand Canyon and then you go, when I was in the middle of the Grand Canyon, you know, I hiked 10 miles in and I'm like, Oh, the Grand Canyon doesn't give a shit about anything that I do. Like this idea of me leaving a legacy and being remembered, like these birds circling is waiting for me to die, you know? <laughs> like, like there, there's a bear somewhere I'm unaware. Like, it's like, like you, you go, Oh, I'm completely insignificant. It, but at the same time, feeling significant, like because you're a part I'm of a something part larger, of something larger. Yeah. Right. It's, it's the craziest thing. Like to hold both of those that yin yang at the same time to be like, Oh, this is all insignificant. It doesn't matter. And then to feel so large. It was such an empowering moment yeah. to, to stand in the middle like that. Um, uh, and be like, wow, this is, this is cool. Yeah. I'm not my own team on it. I'm on a gigantic team. Yes. And ultimately we lose. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody loses. Yeah. Everybody. Well, dies. you know, and, and one of the, my favorite quotes, cause you brought up a quote earlier was, you know, the universe is I go to a spiritual church and, you know, every Sunday the guy talks about how the universe loves you and, uh, and it has got your best. It's conspiring for you, blah, blah, blah. And there was always a part of me that just was like, I don't know if that's, I just saw somebody get shot the other day. Like, was that the, like, you know, but, but, but then I, I read a quote that said the universe is indifferent. And I'm more satisfied and content with that answer than the universe is, you know, really looking out for me. Um, and not that I'm, it's a, it's not a negative. Um, it's not like the, I don't think the universe is out to hurt me. I just think the universe does what the universe does. Yes. Like the volcano uh, is not erupting to kill me, Leo Flowers. It just, that's what volcanoes do. Right. You know, you get attacked by a shark. That's what sharks do. They, you know, um, and so I, I think that when you realize like life is both creative and destructive, right? Then you, you don't take things personally. Mm-hmm. Which is hard as humans. It's really hard, emotionally. especially as a narcissist. It's it's really hard to not take things personally. The good news and the bad news is other people aren't really thinking about you. It's it's so it's like I'm not going to take it personal, but I guess I'm not on everybody's uh, everybody's mind like I like I thought I was. I, I, I mean, I think about like Michael Jackson, and and you think about all the accomplishments. But really, how often are you having a, a conversation? about Michael Jackson. You know what I mean? Or Prince. Outside of the courtroom. Outside of the courtroom. 
or you know uh, any Alexander the Great, mm-hmm. Genghis Khan. Like, how often are you really bringing those? And how much do they really factor into your day to day life? Right. And you look at everything that they. And so you think you're going to outdo that legacy, right. and, <laughs> and be remembered? Uh, uh, I think a couple of years before Prince died, he was quoted as saying. I have talking about career success. I've been to the top of the mountain and there's nothing there. Wow. Wow. Uh going back to what you were talking about with the uh, the universe, I I believe that yes the universe is indifferent but depending on the energy that we are in the state that we're in, you know, either positive or negative, it has different paths for us. And trying to lead a principled life um, puts us in a, a oh God, I hate this word, vibration, that the a portion of the ener- uh, of the universe will meet us and guide us. And likewise, with ne- negative energy, um, and then, you know, but some, I'm sure a skeptic would say, but bad things happen to good people. But inside every bad thing, there are moments of beauty. There are moments of connectedness and ways that you can. That's not saying that there isn't pain and there isn't, you know, all those other things in those moments. But it's taking the beauty in those moments finding the beauty in those moments to connect to other people and to feel that connection that that we were talking about. For instance, you coming on and talking about this, right. talking about suicide. And this, I think, would be a great yeah, place you know, to talk about your story and, and I, your childhood and what led you to that place. You know, it's, it's funny because I don't know if... If I was led to it versus it's just something I've always thought about. Yeah. Ever since I was a kid, as well, I remember when I was a kid, um, I I think maybe I was like nine or 10 and I told my mom I was going to kill myself when I was 40. I'm 42. And so you're a procrastinator. I'm a procrastinator. Uh, and and uh, I, I take very long. Like I was that guy who like didn't start doing the writing a paper till the night before. Uh, even when I was in grad school, I got my master's. Uh, I turned in all my papers, and then uh, but I plagiarized them all. So then I had to rewrite every single paper over the summer. It was just I just procrastinate. I just what, I draw things out. What'd you get your master's in? Uh, counseling psychology. <laughs> yes, obviously, right, right. Yes. That's that's the. That's the direction you go. So are you um, in uh, LMFT? I'm not because I, I didn't get it done here in L.A. I got it done in uh, uh, Indiana. So oh, okay. I counseled inmates and married couples. For me to be an MFT here, I would have to go back to school, take more classes, and then take the licensing uh, test here. Where, where did you get your master's? Ball State University. Oh, okay. I went yeah. to Indiana. In oh, Tennessee, yeah. So right I thought on. there was yeah. a chance maybe. So I did my undergrad and grad uh, there. Um, and and. And got them both paid for. Wow. My, my undergrad was paid for through a football scholarship. And then my grad school was paid for through a graduate assistantship. So they pay for all your schooling. And then they also uh, give you a little stipend. 
So Leo Flowers talk about vib- vibrational frequencies, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, uh, so I'm guessing that you were not a fullback, um, not a not a wide receiver, um, tight end, defensive tackle, defensive tackle. Yes, sir. I used to weigh 275 okay. pounds. There we go. Uh, there we go. I would not have guessed a lineman. Right. Yeah, yeah, not at all. And uh, and 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 that, I mean, that's been you know that's added to the struggle of. I was two hundred pounds when they recruited me um, out of high school, and then, but I was so I was small, obviously, for that position because how tall are you? Six one and a half. Okay. So at the time they recruited me to play defensive tackle, I was two hundred pounds, uh, six one and a half. Uh, and, and that's way too small, but I was a really, I was like all state, all American, honorable mention. No so way. So my stats were great, uh, which is why I took the chance on me. But I, I was like, there's no way I'm going to survive at the college level, uh, at 200 pounds as a defensive tackle. So I immediately just began literally gorging myself to death over the summer. I put on 30 pounds, uh, in one summer. And then every year I just slowly, you know, kept putting on weight till I got up to 275. And, you know, I was doing everything we tell people not to do. Like, I'm just eating late at night, entire pizzas, pasta. I'm just shoveling food in my mouth uh, to to bulk up and lifting heavy and on all those things. And uh, And so now at 42, I'm still trying to undo those habits. You know, was there pleasure in in the gorging, or did it get to a point where it was? Uh, there was I, so there was one summer where I was working at Home Depot. I was you know in college, but I was home and um, and I was doing my uh, I was gorge. I would gorge. I would eat an entire rotisserie chicken for lunch every day, <laughs> and then drink like this half gallon of juice. Because I was working out, I was a loader at Home Depot, so I was outside in the sun, and I'd just be drenched, and and you know I'd be exa- I'd be tired from picking up those heavy concrete bags. And one day, I eat the entire rotisserie chicken like I've been doing every day, and my stomach's bleh, bleh, and I go run in the bathroom, and I get the runs, and then I, f- I feel like I'm gonna throw up, and I turn my head and I throw up on the floor, and I didn't realize there was a guy in the stall next to me. And all the vomit just splashed up onto oh. his. And he goes, and I could tell from his shoes and his pant leg, he was wearing a suit. Oh. And a nice suit, too. Like, oh, he was clearly there on his lunch break. And, and I'm just terrified now because, you know, I'm like, I'm going to get fired for throwing up on a customer. And this guy is clearly, you know, from the shoes and the, and the pant. I was like, he's got money. And I just, like, I just balled up a little curl on the toilet like please don't come in and he was like god damn it start cursing he wiped it off and he left he never like was like who's in there or anything like that he just got out of there but um so yeah i mean it definitely wasn't all pleasure is is my point and uh and now i have horrible acid reflux and gerd and and uh and stuff that i have to have to look out for so so, so let's go back to uh, growing up. What yeah. what are some moments you remember from childhood, other than the uh, you know saying out loud, uh, "I'm going to be, I'm going to kill myself by the time I'm 
I'm 40. Well, I, I think... Um, what I mean, was the, what was the so, area that, that you were raised in Rogers Park? I was raised uh, mostly on the north side, Chicago. Um, and uh, there's a little bit of time uh, where I, we went to the south side. So my my mom and my dad, they never got married. I was conceived while my dad was married to another woman. Right. And he had a whole separate family on the south side of Chicago. My mom was aware, but. My dad had two daughters with his wife. And this was at a time where the men, where people thought that like the women kind of determined the sex. So he's like, my wife can't give me any, any sons. I want a son. So my mom was like, I'll give you a son. And then fucking gave him a son. It was like the craziest thing. Um, but he never left his wife and he took it with him to his grave. His wife and, uh, daughters never found out. But now me and, his daughters are my half sisters. We now have connected since the the funeral and we're close now, but growing up, um, I would see my father like once a year, maybe, oh, man. uh, you know, maybe a birthday, maybe Christmas. And, uh, there would be other times that were scheduled, but like, you know, I just remember as a kid, like sitting on the steps waiting for my dad to, to show up. And then sometimes he wouldn't show and he wouldn't call, you know, so I, I know for sure, like, I, um, I have a thing with time and always being on time. And if somebody's like seconds late, like it really drives me nuts. Like I, I just, you know, so, I, and I recognize that, you know, part of it comes from that, that anxiety of, is this person going to show up when they say they're going to show up and, and, you know, confirming and, and blah, blah, blah. Um, but, uh, I, I, you know, I just remember as a kid struggling to my dad drank and smoked and um, I would when he would come over, he would come over like a six pack. And and sometimes he'd sit it down and go in another room. So I would grab him and like just pour him all down the toilet and hide his cigarettes and things like that. I bet he loved that. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> now I understand why he came by once a year. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, they do screwing up my, my, you know, the, the alcohol and the drinks and stuff like that. But it's heartbreaking. It's hard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a weird thing because on one hand I've always been independent and I've loved, always loved my freedom. And I love the fact that I could come home and not have anybody to answer to is my mom, you know, worked long hours. But on the other hand, I, I think what pained me wasn't so much that he wasn't there. What pained me was that he wasn't there when he said he would be there. You know, like if you say you're going to show up, show up. If you're not going to show up, fine. Um, but don't tell me you're going to come and then, right. and then not, not show up. And so, uh, so yeah, ladies, I got commitment issues, but, (laughs) um, so like, you know, I, I'm just like, and people go like, why aren't you married and have kids? Because I think about like, I love what I do and I'm always thinking about, do I, will I give my children the time that I know that children need? Yeah. And I'm just not, I'm not there yet. And I don't think I'll ever be there. Yeah. I'm the the exact same way. Yeah. I just, I love to travel. I love to pick up and go. I think like a Navy SEAL, zero dark thirty. You know, I don't like to have a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, I just, you know, I like. I, I'm like, oh, maybe I live in Portugal, or maybe you know, it's like I never feel settled anyway, just because of how I grew up. Like, I went from a, a public school uh, up to the third or fourth grade, and then I went to a, a all white. I went to an urban public school, and then I went to an all white Catholic school. 
from fourth grade to eighth grade. Um, and then I went back to a uh, very diverse high school um, and then college. So I've always had to what, like. What high school did you go to? Lane Tech. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's a power, 4,000 students. Powerhouse uh, sports school, too. Yeah, we had a, our defensive line all went uh, Division One on scholarships. Wow. So we had an incredible defensive D line when I was there. Um, but I've just always, I've just spent my entire life having to, uh, fit in, you know, like it wasn't like I, I went from this school to that school and I had, I had friends at the new school. It was like, I always had to start over mm. and figure out, you know, how do I, how do I, you know, where, where do I, who do I need I to this? be? Who do I need to be? Absolutely. And, and who, like a chameleon. Yeah. And absolutely. Who, are there moments that you recall of saying, I need to be this person here around these group of people and I need to be this person around these group oh, of people? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Any that you can remember? Well, that you, can you know, I, one being, it's like part of it is intentional. Mm-hmm. Part of it's natural. Yeah. Like I like if I'm in New York for a week, I'm like, yo, son, what up? And it is mm-hmm. not I'm not doing it on purpose. You know, uh, my mom is from Belize. I would we would go to Belize on the summers and um, I would just start speaking, you know, Belize like with the accent and just naturally. And it would be hard for me to actually speak with the English accent if I was there long enough. So I have this. I took a test when I was in college called the MMPI. It's a personality uh, test and it's like almost 600 questions and it tells you exactly what your personality is and it said I was borderline schizophrenic what yeah and and not borderline personality it's a completely different thing right borderline schizophrenic basically like I tested like right below schizophrenia and my professor uh, explained it to me is that be- because I'm not in jail uh it it just means I'm highly creative, right? Like and and so I have, and that's why like I, I'm always like chameleon like because I can just did, navigate. What does jail have to do with anything? Uh, so here's what's interesting. He said if you were in jail, you would uh, you would become whatever you had to be to survive in jail because you're adaptive. I see. Right, that chameleon like uh, ability. Um, and so he was like, fortunately, and so he was like, if you. Um, as long as your circumstances and your environment and everything like that are, are well, like you'll stay out of jail because you have these other attributes of being creative. Like, you know, I do write poetry, stand up, you know, I'm practicing guitar, things like that. I have those things to occupy me and stop me from going into the a, a, in a criminal direction. But he goes, you, you, you would do fine in jail. You know, because you would adapt, you would figure out what you need to do. And I, I was, I was arrested, um, when I was 16 for carjacking. Um, and I didn't do it. My best friend, uh, I was with a best friend. We're driving down the street and he forgot to turn and put on his turn signal. We get pulled over. And then the cop said that the car is registered as uh, stolen. And I'm like, what the hell? And I know my buddy, I was like, he would never steal a car. Um, and so we we go down, they take us downtown, I'm in a lineup. Now it was cold that night, so I had his jacket on. The guy who reported it stolen comes down to identify who stole the car and points me out because he recognized the jacket because he knew my buddy, 
I know this is the craziest story. Right. So your um, buddy did steal the car. Well, what happened is that my buddy sold drugs and he was selling drugs to that guy. And that guy didn't have the money to buy the drugs. So that guy said, I'll ah. give you the car. It turns out it wasn't that guy's car to give. Oh my God. It was his mom's car. So he reported it stolen. Right. This is like a horrible game it's, of it's, telephone. Right. <laughs> and so now because I'm wearing my buddy's jacket, he, I, he remembers the jacket and says, yeah, that's one of the guys who carjacked me. I didn't have an alibi for the time of the carjacking, the alleged carjacking. So I had to plead guilty and served a hundred hours of community service. And that went on your record. And that went on my record. But I was 16. So it was, it was expunged. Um, and it was just like, and I would have gotten off if my buddy had just said I didn't, I wasn't there. Like, if, if he had just, like, taken the blame for the whole thing. Right. But he uh, he posted Bond and then skipped town. So What I'm did just, that feel like? Oh, man, it felt horrible. It was my best friend. I mean, you talk about every year uh, we spent Thanksgiving together. We grew up together. We, we you know, what best friends do, playing ball and stuff. And it really just... It's like these situations growing up that just chipped away at my trust. Yeah. You know, and just always re it was like all these little things kept happening that was just like, you got to figure this out by yourself. You got to figure this mm -hmm. out. Like nobody, nobody gives a, a fudge about you. And you can say fuck. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so you're going to have to figure out. If you want something done, you have to do it yourself and don't tell anybody what you're doing because nobody's going to believe in what you're doing more than you are. Boy, what, you know? what a perfect foundation for somebody to have suicidal ideation. Yeah. And, and so when your best friend does that, when your father, you know, uh, is not keeping his promises, um, and, you know, and I didn't, and, and not to say that I had a bad childhood. I had a, I had a good childhood. My mom was great. Um, but you know, she was, a, she was an immigrant mom. So I got whoopings from her. And, and I remember I got a, a whooping from her. One of the things that stood out was I got a whooping from her for something that I didn't do. Some other guy told her I did something and she believed that kid. And then I got the, like, one of the worst beatings of my life. And so now I'm just like planning my escape. I, I I literally remember like as a kid just always like how am I gonna get out of here? And as soon as I'm 18, and it, just, it felt like I was like biding time, you know. It was like I was like I felt like as a kid I was just doing time, you know. Um, and like how do I get out of this? And so I feel like even to this day I have this kind of like even when I walk into a situation I'm always kind of looking for the exit. Yeah. You know? Like all right, how do I if I walk in what's my exit? Mm -hmm. You know. Um, which is probably a part like why I won't get married is like, cause I know I'm going to be looking for the exit. Like I don't have that like, um, debt till death do us part kind of passion you know, that, that you see in movies. I'm, gl I'm glad you brought that up. The feeling of always wanting to know where there is an exit because one of the things that it took me a long time to realize I had in my system was the way I navigated my life was very much to avoid feeling cornered. Mm -hmm. In my childhood, I always felt cornered uh, mm. by my mom. I was the only one who, in our family, that uh, would 
listened to her, that was kind of had empathy mm. for her. So I became kind of her surrogate spouse, you know, her therapist. She would Same go on thing. rants yes. for a half hour about people. And I, ju- I always felt like, well, my mom is fragile and I have to be there for her. Right. But I carried that into adulthood with me mm. where I, I think that's one of the reasons I escaped into alcohol and all these other things was because I j- never felt like I had autonomy because even if I technically had it I felt like I can't hurt anybody's feelings I have to be the good guy and that and I'm not saying I was the good guy but I felt like I had to be the good guy and it's a really terrible burden to put on yourself to think that you are still that kid that doesn't have the power of choice that can't just leave that can't just say hey you know, I gotta go or this relationship isn't, isn't working for me because right. my, my needs aren't being met or whatever, whatever it is. Um, it's, it, that codependence is every bit as, uh, serious as alcoholism or anything else because you have the keys to your own prison and you tell yourself, I'm not worthy of parole. That's, it's such that, the power of just getting up and walking away is so amazing. I even, I, I remember reading that somewhere because we, we grew up similarly because my dad wasn't around. I was my mom's husband, best friend, and I have a younger sister, four years younger that I, I did grow up with. And so if they got into an argument, I was the mediator Man. between those two. My mom would be like, you know, well, let's see what your brother had. And I was like 10. I'm like, what do you mean? What do I have to say? And and we would literally sit at the dinner table. I'm at the head of the dinner table with my mom to the left and my sister to the right and trying to, like, bridge this gap between them uh, of communication. Did you wear a judge robe? <laughs> I should have. Did you have a powdered gavel and all that? Yeah. And it was like, on one hand, like, I had – I was I – was, you know, bequeathed all this power. And on the other hand, I have to be in bed by like six. You know what I mean? Like it was such a, a mind, uh, you know, it, it was. You were parentified. It was, I was parentified early. And, uh, my, my other buddy who I, uh, I became best friends with, uh, in high school, he grew up the same way. And I see him having the same struggle of parenting himself. Mm hmm. And now that's where I'm at is like, how do I parent myself? But going back to the walking away, like I used to stay in conversations, in relationships, in situations because I was like, I got to be able to fix this. Like, I can't just leave this right here. Like, this isn't, you know. And why would you tell yourself that? Because you didn't want to hurt them. That was uh, was just how trying to be polite, trying to be the good guy. Putting uh, putting their feelings first. Putting their feelings first. But also not giving them enough credit for being able to work through it themselves. I see. Thinking, right? thinking they're thinking, incapable. Think they're, they're incapable. Or like, they I won't want be, to. Right. Like, I got to be the guy to do this, the Superman. But also because it kind of feeds my ego to be able to fix it, right? Yeah. There's an ego thing there, too, of like, yeah, that's right. Like, you're doing better and smiling because of me. You know, like, I would I would get that in counseling. You know, people come to you you know, in great pain. And then, you know, you say a couple of things and have them do a couple of things. Oh, I feel great. Yeah, you do. Cause you came to Leo flowers. You That's know? right. 
um, I'm the best hostage. I'm the best. But then on the flip side, if they don't get better, you take that personally also. So there's, you know, there's both, both sides yes. of it. Of if you're too invested and, and take too much pride in, in their progress, you're also then gonna, it's like when your favorite team loses. It's yes. like, you know, some people are like burning their jerseys and, yeah. and like they can't go to work on Monday, you know? Um, but now, like, I, man, I forget what, how it was phrased. But ever since I read this, it was talking about walking away. And now, like, if I'm in a movie and I don't like the movie, I leave the movie. No matter what I paid for it. You know, because I feel like my time and my energy are super important. I don't finish, uh, like, I'll watch a TV show. And I might watch it for, like, ten minutes now. And I'll be like, all right, that's enough. Like, and, and I'll, talk to, I'll be talking to people, and I'll be like, got to go. Like there's that's uh, so it's, healthy. It's so healthy. It's hard. I, I can't do it every time, but I'm I'm consciously getting better at just being like, and I'm done. That, and it, right? Yeah, and and finding a way to express that to people that is diplomatic and is um, compassionate without making yourself a doormat Absolutely. or being overly apologetic right. is huge. And something that I've had to work through being in support groups is occasionally you'll get somebody that is very long-winded and really just wants an audience. And I have had to set boundaries with them. And the way I had to come up with doing it compassionately is saying to them, you know, I care about you. And um I, I wouldn't say this if I didn't, but I feel like an audience member when we talk and I find myself starting to, to get resentful and I don't want to feel that way. So I just want to let you know that, that that is, it just doesn't feel like a conversation. Wow. And most people aren't aware that that is going on. They're right. so in survival mode and feeling like I need somebody to understand me. Otherwise I'm, I'm, I'm fucking dead. Uh, they they don't like one guy I shared that with. I said, Brian, I love you, man, but we've been here for forty five minutes and you have talked for forty four and a half minutes. <laughs> right. And he reacted almost like you did, and he said he went, Wow. He said, Thank you. Thank you for and I said, honestly, it's why a lot of times I don't call you back. Right. And it was so empowering. It's, exhaust, it's exhausting. It is. And and it hurts. It hurts because it's like, oh, you don't care what I have to say. Right. I'm a thing to you. Yes. Yes. And I think yes. the thing you and I share is we felt like sometimes like things to our mothers growing up. Like I am a sounding board right. and I need you to be my mom. Yeah. 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 That, that's, you know, um, I, I, I was in a conversation with some friends the other day and uh, she said, uh, I said something and she was like, well, that was stupid. And usually I would have gotten so pissed or just completely withdraw. Like mm -hmm. I'm either at zero or a hundred. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I said to her later, I was like, you know what you said really hurt. Um, and I just wanted to let you know that. And she was like, oh my God, I'm sorry. That wasn't my intention. And I can immediately felt release. Um, and I felt, um, um, heard and I felt like, oh, empowered and, and not so much because of 
she was like, oh, that wasn't my intention. I'm sorry. But because I was able to specifically identify the emotion. And your need. And my need, right? Because I realized, I, I, and I think a lot of people do this, we walk around and we either say we're good, fine, or we're depressed or angry. Um, and there are so many other uh, nuanced emotions. Oh my God. And there's so many emotions in the middle that we never express and, and that are, that are more specific and more precise as to how we're feeling. It's like, are you really always depressed or are you bothered or are you uncomfortable or are you hurt or are you despondent or are you bewildered? Like they're like, I just got this book the other day. It was on emotional eating. Cause like I said, like I'm, I'm still like trying to undo that, that habit. And when she listed all the different emotions that are under uh sad, it was like 20 of them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh my God, I, I feel more like that yes. most of the time. Then, you know, I've just been like, yeah, I'm depressed. It's like, no, sometimes it's melancholy. Sometimes, sometimes it's, I'm just bothered. And so like I've, at night I've, I've gotten to a place where, um, sometimes I'll write down what's bothering me. Cause I feel like if I don't, if I don't catch that, then that becomes depression mm-hmm. at some point. If I'm not addressing those, um, and being able to express that in a conversation, like, oh, it really bothered me when it really hurt me when, and I think that's, I think that's a part of why, like, when we're talking to people or people are talking to us, we don't respond because we don't know how to clearly identify what we're feeling or what's happening to respond. So we're just kind of like taking this until we figure out how to, what, what, what this, what this, what this means for us. Right. Until it's rage or suicide or suicide or something smaller. And then because really it was something small in the beginning, but then because now you're, you're 44 minutes in, you know, the way you felt at 10 minutes in and at 20 and 30, you let it go to 44. So now it's rage and, or whatever it is, or just complete like exasperation. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and so I, you know, I urge people to like, really expand your emotional vocabulary so that you could really, I mean, are you just, are you always pissed? Is that the only word? And it's almost always, at least for me or for me at the bottom, if I say, okay, but what's underneath Mm -hmm. the, the, the anger, it's almost always fear, some form of fear, you know, either that a self negative self belief I have about myself is true, that I'm forgettable. I'm not worthy of respect. I'm going to die alone, broken and homeless. Uh, I'm damaged beyond repair, whatever, Mm. whatever the fear is, it then comes out in some way of depression, anger, isolating, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I uh, I went to couples therapy with uh, my ex girlfriend, and I mean we we've been dating for like a month, and we're like we got to go to couples therapy, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I urge everybody to do. I, I think it's a great way just to learn some communication skills. It's the but best. One of the most powerful things to speak to what you were just saying uh, that I that I took away from couples therapy was because she would get angry about something, and I think a lot of people are in these relationships where. Your partner gets angry and then you as a person either react 
with anger. Like, why are you upset? Oh, I'm pissed and blah, blah, blah. Or you completely shut down yep. and you walk away. Mm-hmm. Most people operate in those two arenas, right? And that's because that's what we've seen. That's what was uh, modeled for us. You don't see nuanced dialogue in nuance. movies. No, no, yes. right? It's always, right, that doesn't play well, right? No. Um, and and also, it just did you grow up with just your one parent, your, your mom? Uh, my or? dad was there, but he was an alcoholic, kind of okay. che- checked out at the end of the couch, but not, not an abusive man, just kind of neglectful. So what my therapist pointed out to me, and a, and a lot of men who uh, are just, you know, children who grow up in a single-parent home, or they have both parents, but one parent's kind of checked out. Mm-hmm. What they end up witnessing is either zero or a hundred. And what they don't end up witnessing is conflict resolution. Mm-hmm. Diplomacy. Diplomacy. And I didn't realize that until my therapist pointed out. She's like, oh, you never witnessed. You've never witnessed how to click down through emotions, how to talk someone down. And I was like, no wonder I'm like either at zero or a hundred. Yeah, and especially as an athlete, it's like I need to win. Absolutely. And then you want to, and then you, you the vanquished. Yes. You're going to be living with that person. Yes. It's like what? It's insane. It took me 15 years of marriage to realize why would I want to dominate somebody in a in a conflict when that's the person I'm committed to. Well, yeah, if you win, they lose. And who wants to be married to a loser? Yeah. Right? They, like, they, a resentful. A resentful. Right. And so the, the way she, she taught me how to click through emotions is because uh, you're like at the, at the base layer is fear, right? Um, so if my girlfriend says, I'm angry, for me to then respond with, I understand why you're angry. I'd be angry, too, if such and such and such. And then ask, what else are you feeling? Because, like you said, there's always a million emotions. So then she'll go, well, I'm also a little frustrated with such and such. You're like, I understand why you're frustrated, blah, blah, blah. What else are you feeling? So to keep asking, to acknowledge the feeling first, and then to ask what else are you feeling, then by the fifth time you ask that, you'll get to that fear. Because the first emotion is usually external. I'm pissed at you. Mm-hmm. And then by the time you get to the fifth emotion usually it's uh, you know i'm just really terrified that you know it's like you know i just want us to spend more time together and i just feel like we're going apart and blah blah, blah. then also you see her shoulders relax and her voice comes down and it works every time and it's hard to do i i try to do it on myself it's so challenging so i try to catch it with the hurt bothered or uncomfortable because usually i'm in one of those three yeah. arenas if i am you know spiraling down but anytime I, I'm, I'm talking to someone and and they're escalating and i address the feeling what else are you feeling they immediately start to relax release and then we can go into a real dialogue about uh what's happening yeah so you're so it's like but we we're not taught that we're not we're taught math we're taught the state capitals, but you know, most of your success in life comes from relationships. Mm-hmm. Relate like your ability to connect with someone else. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why they say, um, you know, A students will always work for C students because A students are so focused on, on the work that they, they spend a lot of time alone. So they don't have those social skills where C students, 
because they're because they're not the smartest, they have to work in teams. They have to work in groups. They have to figure out how to manage emotions and and egos and things like that, and how to negotiate. And they're looking at the big picture. And they're looking at the big picture. And so, and and that's what you want in a leader. That's what you want in a CEO. Someone who can, you know, keep the big picture in mind of what we're trying to accomplish, but also be able to talk and, and manage groups and inspire people. And usually your your A students don't have that ability. They just want to be told what to do, and then they go off in their little cubicle and get it done. So what what we're saying is, kids, stop studying. <laughs> right, if you right, take anything right. away from this... <laughs> Close and, the books. Yes. And <laughs> when you are in conflict with somebody um, and you don't know what to say, say Montpelier. Any state. Any state capital. Any state will, capital. Will do. But Montpelier, I think, in particular is a, because, is a you good You know what? I, yeah, because it distracts them. They go, what? Huh? And yep. then they And then, they, and then you're forget. packed your bags. Yeah, and then you're, and you're already gone. Yes. <laughs> yep. All they hear is a They hear that. The car door slam. So are you comfortable talking about the suicide attempt? Oh, no. I never had a suicide attempt. Oh, you didn't? No, You just talk about it. No, no. So for me, in terms of my suicide is like... It, there's almost not a day where I don't think about committing suicide. And what's fascinating is I'm at 42. I'm, and there's sometimes where like the urge is stronger than others. Um, not too long ago, I called the suicide hotline and, but I didn't call them when I was suicidal. I called them when I was completely fine. And the reason why I did that um, is because I realized when I'm completely feeling suicidal, the last thing I want to do is pick up a phone and talk to someone. Absolutely. And the last thing I want to do is pick up a phone and talk to someone that I've never talked to before. Who might tell me something. Who might tell me something. I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear. And, and to experience something I never experienced before. And there were so many times where I was so suicidal and crying and just, just at despondent at the low of lows. And I was like, I know I should call this number, but I was like, what the fuck are they going to tell me? What are they going to do? And so I wouldn't call. And I had a therapist. I was like, I'm not calling my therapist. What's she going to put me in jail? Are they going to like lock me up? You start thinking about that. Is it going to go on my record? And then like I, I go to like a, apply for a house and they put, you know, like it does it affect my insurance? All these things, you and, know, and they, that is the, um, you know, this, but th- that is the worst route to go down is the future tripping. Absolutely. I think one of the biggest mistakes we make is we, if we do ask for help, we want to try to control the manner in which it comes, which is the opposite of what help is. Absolutely. Absolutely. But go ahead. I'm sorry. I cut you um, off. Um, and so I said, you know what? Uh, some, I forget who had just committed suicide. Uh, it was uh, a celebrity. And, you know, people post the number and I'm like, has anybody ever called this number? Like people were posting it and I'm like, do you even know what the experiences is like? Like for you to even, re- how are you recommending something if you've never? And so I go, let me call to see if I, if this is even something to recommend to someone. And I ended up talking to the guy for 30 minutes and it was a great conversation. Um, the first thing they ask you is, you know, on a scale of, you know, one to five with, uh, one being, 
you know, not suicidal and five being like, oh, I'm standing on a bridge, you know, like, where are you? And I was like, I'm at, I think I said, uh, two or three. I can't remember the number. And you can't get off the, he won't, he won't get off the phone, which he doesn't say this, but I, I'm, I'm sure he won't get off the phone with you until you say one. Right. And so we were talking and, um, and we talked about everything. Like I was, I was talking to him about my, you know, past suicidal ideations and emotions and feelings of inadequacy and, uh, and, and depression. And, and he did such a great job. Of making me feel heard, uh, validated, uh, listened to. At at no point did I feel like because like I said we were on the phone about thirty minutes. Did I feel like he wanted to get off the phone? Um, did I feel like he wasn't listening? That um, he was. It was. It, it just. It was a very comforting phone call, and it makes me feel fantastic to know that I have that as a resource when I need it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and I think a lot of people make the mistake of waiting until they're at rock bottom to try to make that call when really it's too late. And I got to tell you, just knowing that that's there and a lot of times just stop me from sinking lower. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, I do. I do have, you know, and I know that every time you call, you get a different person, but they're all trained the same way. And I just had such a great experience that I'm just like, oh, yeah, I, I, if, I, if, I, if I need, I can call, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, but so what I've what I'm what I'm training myself to do is, you know, I, like I said, I played football and um, I, I call this thing where I go. I go through my progressions. So like when I'm feeling suicidal or depressed or in a low of lows, you know, I, I, I journal, exercise, read, meditate, self-talk, uh, Spanish sometimes, guitar. And I'll go in that order. Sometimes I move around depending on the situation. But at, at no point do I, if I go through those things, do I, am I the same person on the other side? You know what I mean? Yeah, that's right. And, and I realize like it's about changing my state because I'm not walking around feeling suicidal 24 seven. There's just these moments where it, it hits me out the blue. It's a it's a very sometimes it's very strong and it's very powerful. And I I now realize that uh, I have to respect it in that just acknowledging like it's a part of my makeup for whatever reason. And that if I don't take care of it, it can get out of control and it can blindside me. And I, I'm not always going to be strong enough to uh, to manage it and deal with it. So to preemptive strike it and to have systems in place so I'm not having to think about what to do. Right. You know wow, what, what a great idea. It's like tools. You have tools. Absolutely. And you're wearing tools. the tool belt uh, at all times. And right. I hate right. that analogy right. so much, I can't even uh, begin to express how much I loathe myself. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, 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 and now what I'm discovering is the power of food and how I feel about myself. So I went for a few days, um, no... No processed foods. It was all, it was proteins, fats, and veggies. Uh, and no carbs. If there were carbs, it was from fruit only. And I felt amazing. And I, I, I don't remember any suicidal ideation. I was really paying attention to my thoughts and my ideas and things like that. 
and I was driving to the Grand Canyon, and it was like uh, I was tired because it was like eight hours or whatever. And I stop at the gas station, and I get some donuts, and I swear to you, halfway it was like a six pack of those, those tiny little donuts. I was three in, and immediately I was like, I'll fucking kill everybody and myself, and I'll blow this whole place up. <laughs> Like it went from zero to sixty. What brand of donuts are we talking about? Because I need to avoid those. <laughs> but it just made me realize how much uh, processed foods and foods uh, and and dairy and, and the sugars and the oils, how much that affects how I view and think about life. I mean, sleep also. If I don't get mm-hmm. enough sleep, I'm a completely different person mentally. Um, but food, and you know, there's this whole thing about the gut-brain connection Huge. that's now just exploding, and we're really having great conversations about it. So I realized, like, when I, if I have gluten, if I have, uh, uh, you know, processed sugar, dairy, uh, you know, GMOs, uh, it, like that stuff, it 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 triggers, and I spiral down, and, and it's immediate, and I was like. I can't believe the effect that food is having on me. Uh, there is a great book uh, called The Body Ecology Diet, which addresses that whole thing about gut and making sure that you have good flora. Because one of the things about the Western diet is it's overly acidic and it's overly uh, sweet. And that um, propagates an overgrowth of yeast, which sap our energy and uh, it, it, it fucks with everything. And, uh, I did that diet for about six months and it absolutely changed, uh, changed my life. Mm-hmm. And now I've slipped back into, uh, eating more sugar than I would care to admit. But, um, and one of the things that it recommends is eating, um, uh, what are the cultured vegetables, uh, like kimchi and stuff, uh, like that, because that puts good flora back in our gut, especially, uh, before or after you eat something sweet. But yeah, there's a, a huge, uh, huge correlation between it, the two. That, and the, and the battle now is, cause I read another book that said not to eat kimchi and fermented foods because it, it feeds the, um, I, I, and so it's like, it's, all, the information is so conflicting in terms of foods. Like one book would be like, Oh yeah, asparagus is really good for your heart, but it's bad for like it's like every food is good for this, but bad for that. Can so we it's have like <laughs> all those people get together, yeah. work it out, and then phone yeah, us? Yeah, right, 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 yeah. right, right. I, these books are not cheap, guys. Come on, just just talk to each other and see what's <laughs> happening there. Um, but no, no. So I've I've never had I've never attempted uh, suicide, but I I. I but I feel like because I'm a procrastinator and it's not my nature to uh, I'm, I'm not an extremist. I feel like there are moments where I, I'm in my head. I'm thinking like I'm just slowly killing myself. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like whether it's through overeating or, uh, you know, shutting I, down, shutting down, isolating, mm-hmm. like all these not creating future tripping before that tripping. Is- Comparing yeah. myself to other people, um, n- not and, and uh, 
um, lack of output, lack of creativity, you know, mm-hmm. feeling like, well, why am I, why should I put it? Nobody wants to hear what I have to say. Perfectionism. That perfect perfectionism, that hopelessness. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I'm recognizing that. I, uh, a quote that I read said, you know, depression is not something you are, it's something you do. So when I'm feeling low of lows, I go, all right, what am I doing right now? And what do I need to do? And what, you know, what do I need to stop doing, start doing and keep doing, mm-hmm. you know, trying to manage those three things. And, and I, I would clarify that and say that the clinical depression is mm-hmm. beyond anyone's uh, control and thinking you know, blaming that on your actions. While I believe there are things we can do that can help it, help it. Right. Um, clinical depression needs a multifaceted uh, a- attack. Absolutely, to manage. Yeah, it's like the the the, the stronger the you know because your your genetics and chemical and and hormone like all those things play into it. You know, so you know, and and, and what I love about traveling and camping is. Um, you don't feel alone and you realize like how many people are struggling. Like I was on a plane, uh, and this lady was from Lithuania next to me. She was like, Oh yeah, Lithuania has one of the highest suicide rates. And I was like, really? She was like, yeah, there's just not much. There's not a lot of stimulation. There's not much going on. So it, it's just a reminder of like your environment, change your environment, change your state. You know, there are these things you can do to, to try to manage it, hopefully. But but just don't, you know, I feel like I, I remember there was a point where I just thought it was just all me. And like, I like there's something wrong with me mm-hmm. versus um, not you know, versus like not realizing I'm connected to a bigger thing. And that th- this this whole thing needs to be looked at yeah. versus, you know, you know, look at yourself. But then look at your immediate environment, look at your interpersonal relationships, but also look at your society. It's like, you know, if there's not a lot of, you know, in, the, in those societies where they talk about, um, you know, people flourish and are super happy, right? Um, and there's low depression and low suicide rates. There are so many factors that are into that. They trust their government. They have a good health care system. They have a good educational system. Uh, they trust their neighbors. Um, there's not a lot of inequality mm-hmm. in those uh, areas. The people it's, make a living wage. People make a living wage. So when and yes, it's more expensive it's more to ex- live there. But what is the cost of no safety net and right. having people work? Um, yeah, I was in when I was in uh, uh, Thailand. People are so happy, and they're not making a lot of money. But they're very connected, you know, something like, like, you know, there was a, a wire down, like one of the telephone wires and people like coming out their shops to like fix the wire and like, you know, it's like just people just come together to get done what needs to be done. And they're not like waiting around for whatever, like people, there was a car that needs to be pushed. People just pushing the car and then they would just go about their day. And there's not a, like a lot of inequality and the food is fresh, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it, it, you just go, oh, I don't need as much as I think I need. I think there's something too to, uh, uh, Buddhist culture mm-hmm. of meeting yourself where you are, not judging, um, not always looking at things in terms of good or bad, right. but just, uh, kind of meeting reality where it is and, and, and say, 
How can I interact with reality in a way that is spiritual and, um, yeah, it, it, uh, knowing when to let go is so important. Uh, so often we just cling on so tight and then project into the future and come up with some ridiculous game plan of how we're going to try to control every variable outcome that may happen. And that is one of the most miserable ways to live. Well, you see that in dating, right? Where people are like using these algorithms and, and, uh, it's like, how much money do you make? You know, where are you from? What's your family? You know, it's like, you feel like these dating profiles, it's like sign up, it's like trying to join an FBI. Like, it's a million questions and people are trying to get it precisely right. And, you know, they're reading all these books and articles and it's like, the idea of falling in love is that you're letting go. You're taking a chance. You're taking a risk. You are risk being hurt. Yeah. Risking. And that's okay. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm in a place now where I like, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm working on coming to grips with that of like, uh, there's this guy, Dr. Alan Watts. Have you heard, have you heard mm-hmm. of him? Yeah. And he talks about if you stop trusting, if you stop taking risks, if you stop taking chances, if you stop falling in love, then you become self-destructive mm-hmm. because if you don't trust, then you isolate and no, nobody can survive by themselves. And then if it's just you, what, who, who wants to live for just you? Like as much as you love yourself, that's great. But you know, we, we, we're a social species. And I, and I think understanding the difference between trusting and being gullible mm. is so huge. Absolutely. And that takes experience often, you know, yeah, get that prenup. Yeah. <laughs> you know, often unpleasant experiences yeah. to, to learn, uh, you know, the difference between gullible and trusting. But, um, I think the better we get it under picking up cues of who is trustworthy and who isn't and still knowing that, okay, this person may reveal themselves later to be untrustworthy, but yeah. part, part of life is, is taking that, that leap. Yeah. I think, um, uh, you know, because I played college football and uh, all that head trauma from high school and from college, there's I definitely feel um, uh, effects of like, you know, CTE, mm-hmm. which which causes depression. Because I can feel there are times where like in my head, I'm just like exp- there's like this explosion of rage that like I'm aware of. And I go, OK, I, I need to do less. Right. Like because stress just like can can just like send me mentally over the edge. And so like stress and, you know, foods and like I need to be on a routine. So I I realize like I have to like slow things down, have a routine, have systems for things um, and and just and, and, and manage it versus thinking, you know, like, I think the problem is, like, on Instagram, everybody's like, you can do whatever you put your mind to. No, no, no. No, you can't. No, you can't. Your mind and your body, listen to your mind and your body and respect that. If if you eat a food and you get burpee, and act, then don't eat that food. Like, your body will tell you immediately what you can and cannot eat, you know. Um, and so, I, I like, I was talking to a buddy of mine, and 
he has CTE and like his uh his testosterone levels are almost zero from from that. So there are all these factors that I'm recognizing that um are trying to push me in one direction and so I have to be stronger in the other direction and and just manage it and uh and 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 trying to find balance that way you know there is a um center in somewhere in texas that is supposed to be the leading place for um dealing with head trauma and athletes Mm -hmm. and depression and Mm -hmm. stuff like that and i I think i saw it it might have been a uh hbo uh, might have been part of Real Sports, Brian Gumble, uh, Real Sports or something else. Yes, it was Real Sports. And I think Troy Aikman, uh, goes there, uh, as well. But, uh, anybody out there, any ex athletes or people who've experienced, uh, concussions, uh, that might be something uh, worth looking, looking I'm, into. I'm definitely gonna, uh, I'm gonna, ch- I'm gonna check that out. I, you know, there was a, a, a player for the Bears called Rashawn Salam. And he was a Heisman Trophy winner in college. And then he went on to play for the Bears. And he ended up killing himself at the age of, uh, I think he was in his 30s, early 30s. And I ran into a buddy who knew him. And I said, why did that guy kill himself? Like, Heisman Trophy winner, good-looking guy, money-like. And my buddy said he didn't know how to take care of himself. And I was, and it just hit home. That's when I really started to look at my, my life and taking care of myself. Uh, and I think a lot of people don't know how to do that. They don't know how much sleep they need, what foods they should and shouldn't eat. Um, you know, they don't know how to, uh, express themselves emotionally. Uh, they don't know what workouts they should be doing. You know, and everybody should be doing CrossFit. Some people will be better off swimming or hiking or Tai Chi. Like, really, really learning how to take care of yourself. A, a lot of people don't learn that, especially if you're growing up in a single parent, you've been in fight and, fl- or, you know, fight, uh, fight and flight mode most of your life. Um, and it just made me take it more seriously. I was like, if that guy, with all his resources, couldn't take care of himself and end up yeah. killing himself then I need to be more diligent and I need, I need to be, uh, I need to take it more seriously, taking care of myself. Look, when you're on a plane and the plane's about to go down and those masks fall, that they tell you the first thing to do is put it on yourself. Don't put it on your children. Don't put it on your, your spouse, put it on yourself. Take care of yourself first so that you can so be that help. you can show up 100% and help others and and be present. So and this is stuff that you you learn as you you get older. Like I think hopefully you get better at that. Taking care of yourself and knowing how to manage your energy and your time and um you know it's it's not easy It's a daily I mean I wake up every day like oh, fuck I, I I have to meditate. Yep. You know. Like I, have to, I have to go through a protocol. It's like before you, you, you know, before you start a plane, you just don't get on a plane and take off. There's like a systems check. Mm-hmm. You got to go through like 50 different things to make sure. And so, I, you know, and a lot of us just get out of bed and we used to start our day and we don't go through our system check to make sure, hey, I'm OK. How am I feeling today? What am I worried about? What am I worried about? What's bothering me? Uh, what do I have? 
unplanned, you know, or do I need to let go? Mm-hmm. Things like, like we have to go through our system check on takeoff and landing, you know? Love it. Well, Leo, thanks for uh, coming by. And, Thank you, bro. Uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. I love talking to him. Um, before we take it out with some surveys, uh, this episode is sponsored by Care Of. Uh, if you're like me, there's times when you're thinking, I should really be probably taking some supplements, but where do I even begin? How do I know what to take? Well, uh, what I think uh, is really cool about Care Of is if you go to their website, you take an online quiz. It's it's pretty brief. You'll answer a few questions about your diet, uh, your health goals, your lifestyle choices, and then you find out their recommendations. It's scientifically backed. Um, they'll tell you what vitamins, protein powders, or whatever it is that they think will help you. And there's even vegan and vegetarian options. Uh, so I think it's really cool. And the other thing I like is they're, uh, they give it to you in a box with individually wrapped packets for each day. So you can just grab one if you're going to take it later and maybe you're heading out the door. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. So for 50% off your first care of uh, order, go to takecareof.com and enter mental50. That's takecareof.com and enter mental50 for 50% off your first care of order. And I'll put the links to this and other stuff that I mentioned uh, under the show notes for the website. I want to tell you guys about a podcast that I think you'll dig. It's called the Pick the Brain podcast. And, you know, when you hear a really good speech, it, it, it can be life-changing. It can be really inspiring and, uh, and even motivating. And this podcast kind of dissects great speeches by well-known people, uh, people uh, like Ellen DeGeneres, Will Smith, Tim Ferriss, J.K. Rowling, um, and the host Aaron Falconer and Jeremy Fisher uh Listen to it and then kind of break it down and discuss it. So uh, check it out. I think you'll dig it. Um, wherever you're listening to this show, uh, go check that out, uh, whatever your podcast player is. It's called the Pick the Brain Podcast. And one more time, that's the Pick the Brain Podcast. Let's get to some surveys. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, small fish, too big a pond. And I just wanted to read one section of it because it's such a common thing. I've read, God, this dozens of times in, in the surveys and so many people who did this as children feel like monsters. And I just want to let them know that you are not alone and it's pretty common. She wrote for her darkest secrets. I started experimenting with myself sexually at a very young age. She was also sexually abused uh, when she was young. And that's another really common thing is when your sexuality is forcibly awakened as a child, it's, it's super common for that child to then find ways to be sexual in their very childlike way. Um, I started experimenting with myself sexually at a very young age and for a short period of time when I was around nine would use peanut butter to trick the family dog into licking me in my private area. I've never told anyone this and writing it makes me feel so fucked up. I'm deeply, deeply ashamed of this and don't think I could even admit it to a therapist. 
I don't have any desire or fantasy to do this again and remember being ashamed at the time. I think any seasoned therapist has probably heard this or is aware of it, and it is so not a big deal to them. And it is such a human thing to have have done. And sending you some sending you some love. This is an awful moment filled out by a, a woman who calls herself Sweet Caroline, and she writes um, my boyfriend had been planning our upcoming trip to Harry Potter World. I'm a huge fan, and my boyfriend taking me on this trip is a dream come true. So he starts telling me about all his research and where we could stay and all the things we should do. I feel myself becoming completely overwhelmed. Dissociation kicks in, and I'm only catching bits and pieces of what he is saying. I try a few times to tell him I wasn't able to process everything he was saying and that we should talk about this another time, but he was just so excited about this trip and kept telling me about all the things. I was so angry at myself for getting overwhelmed and for dissociating and missing huge chunks of his words. He finally saw on my face that I was completely shutting down. He apologized and said we would talk tomorrow, and I went up to bed. I got under the covers, and this tidal wave of emotions came over me. I started hyperventilating and crying. I was sobbing so loud and I could barely breathe. My boyfriend heard me crying and came upstairs. He asked what was wrong and all I could get out was, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what's wrong with me. And then a few times I was able to squeak out, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I do not usually let anyone see me in these highly emotional times and I felt so vulnerable. He held my shoulders and put his forehead on my forehead. He said, you don't have to go through this stuff alone anymore. I'm here, I'm right here. And every few minutes, he would just say, take a breath, baby. I could only take one breath and go back to hyperventilating. This lasted for what felt like forever, and he just held me like that until I was able to calm down. I've never been able to calm myself down this quickly, and I've never let anyone close enough to help me. He laid with me in bed, and our dog cuddled up with us. This moment was truly awfulsome for me. The fact that I couldn't have a conversation with my loving boyfriend about my dream vacation without being overwhelmed and dissociating was absolutely awful. But the way my boyfriend knew exactly what I needed in that moment was awesome. I love him so much. I think your boyfriend's a monster, and I think you should leave him. But seriously, that that is fucking beautiful. That is fucking beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. This is something that somebody posted on my uh, on my Facebook page, uh, and I don't know if it's if this person is male or female. I don't think it matters. Decent podcast man. I didn't ex- expect the way you look. I suspected you looked like a person I wouldn't like, but you look like an '80s FBI agent or someone who unironically drives a Firebird. <laughs> that might be the most backhanded compliment, or maybe not even intended to be a compliment. Uh, I suddenly, I guess people who unironically drive firebirds or look like 80s FBI agents, uh, are, are in the lovable category. Anyway, I'm recording this from my firebird. Uh, and yes, I have the T top off and I'm following an, an interstate perp and it feels pretty bitching. Now, if, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go play a little volleyball with uh, Tom Cruise. Yes, yeah, Mustang there. How about how about a horse? Yeah, that's a that that's a, a popular name for a, a cool guy. Horse. 
let me take off my Ray-Bans and read this next survey. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Tragic Days. He is straight in his 30s, raised in a totally chaotic environment, never been sexually abused, but he has been emotionally abused. He writes, I grew up with a borderline mother that let me know very early in life, around six years old, that I was a fuck-up and a black sheep. I was permanently branded a burden, and my older brother considered a saint by her from that age on. Luckily, my grandmother, my mom's mom, caught on to this trend pretty quickly and took me under her wing and spent a lot of time with me from an early age on. She gave me the nurturing her daughter couldn't until she died when I was 16. Besides that, I was bullied my entire childhood for being overweight. I learned to stress eat when I was young because of being constantly in hostile and validating environments. This is a demon that still haunts me. Darkest thoughts killing myself and also disappearing permanently without giving notice to anyone. Darkest secrets. I've had many occult slash religious experiences since a near-death experience in a high-speed car accident uh, when I was 16. These overwhelming and beautiful experiences destroyed any fear or anxiety I have about dying. But a life of persistent suffering in comparison to these fleeting mystical experiences seems absolutely meaningless. I see the world very differently than the status quo because of these experiences and have created a very invalidating environment. I can't bring these things up to people without being considered schizophrenic or delusional, which I'm neither. I've been in therapy for eight years. I have an extremely hard time relating to people and live in isolation and utter despair even after experiencing some of the most beautiful experiences that anyone can experience. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. One that takes place outdoors in nature, like an ungrounded hippie. I'm not sure exactly what that last part means. Um, because really the word that should always follow uh, or precede hippie is filthy. I remember, uh, and I'm kidding, of course, but I remember, I didn't realize it at the time when I was around six or seven. It would have been like 1970. Um 6970, we lived near woods and teenage kids with long hair and bell bottoms would go out there and smoke or do whatever it was that they do. And while we, as, as kids were, you know, going through the woods, we would sometimes stumble upon them. And, uh, I don't know why I'm using verbiage like I'm a, a late 18th century <laughs> admiral of a ship. As luck would have it, perchance, I occasionally found myself in the company of the previously mentioned hippies. Uh, and somehow, it must have been because of the Manson murders, that we thought that if hippies found you in the woods, they would kill you. How could that ruin a kid's good time? Anyway. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could talk to people about my religious experiences without getting judged or criticized. They weren't caused by drugs, schizophrenic episodes, temporal lobe seizures, etc. My personality has done a complete 180 as a result of these things. I went from an overly aggressive, machismo, rap-blasting, gun-toting, nihilistic drug enthusiast to a tea-drinking philosophy enthusiast gardening aficionado, self-taught artist who cries every time I listen to Joanna Newsom. 
What, if anything, do you wish for? I hope to feel cared about or loved by somebody someday. I've always been on society's back burner and have completely forgotten what fun or what love feels like. I wish to be accepted without expectation or judged and appreciated for the fuck-up I am. Have you shared these things with others? Bits and pieces, but it never goes well as a result of disbelief, but I know I wouldn't believe me either. As a result, I've stopped trying to explain these things to people. How do you feel after writing these things down? Anxious, but since that's my normal state of mind my entire life, I should just say neutral and fine. Is there anything you would like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You're not alone and your redemption is in the truth. No matter how painful these encounters are upon the first confrontation, they are worth uncovering. And instead of thinking how there's nobody that knows how you feel, remember how many people you don't know on this planet. And statistically, there's probably at least 10,000 on this planet that know exactly how you feel. You just have to find them. Thank you for that. I wonder, I, I got to think that there is a Reddit thread on for on, on, um, for people who have had near-death experiences. So that might be worth checking out because you sound like a really, really great guy. And um, it sucks that, you, that you're feeling alone. It really does. It sounds like you, you could be a great friend uh, to someone. And you deserve great friendship. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Watermelon. And she writes, Every time my rageaholic, narcissistic mother guilt-tripped me on the phone, I punched and slapped myself after hanging up. Later on, I stopped self-injuring and started throwing objects. I destroyed three telephones by smashing them on the floor. Today, blind in rage and guilt, I used this energy to change my bed. It was about time. And the flat smells like heaven now. I guess this is what recovery looks like. Way to go, everyone. Thanks for listening, Paul. That is, that is so awesome. And what a great example of recovery. It's just redirecting that energy. God, that's so much of what it's about. It, the biggest gold in the world is taking that leap of faith, sitting through the feelings that feel like they're going to kill us while we take the healthier choice in expressing them. It's so much easier said than done, but it has been the greatest learning experience I've ever done. This podcast wouldn't be here if I hadn't started doing that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself not feeling suicidal, although I may say I'd rather not live anymore. She is... Uh, gay, in her 50s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse, some stuff happened, uh, and I don't know if it counts, and uh, yes, and I never reported it. So it sounds like there were two two different uh, events, at least two different events. Uh, After listening to your podcast, I now know it was sexual abuse. My family thought it was funny when my godfather would touch my body or joke about having sexual desires for me. Wow. Yes, even as early as three years old, I remember feeling uncomfortable having him pat my bottom and joke he shouldn't go too far or his finger would slip inside me. What the fuck? What the fuck? How? 
let's put that guy aside for a second. How does a parent hear somebody talking, even if they're, quote, making a joke? How do you not call that out or say, please leave my house and don't ever come back? Uh, As a teen, I was drunk and forced to have sex. I said, no, he did it anyway. As an adult, we were all joking around. One of the guys came into a vacant boardroom with me and jokingly pretend to come on to me. Next, he had me on the boardroom table and humped me until he came, then told me not to tell his wife and left back to the party. I disappeared inside myself. My husband found me and asked what was wrong. I couldn't tell him for weeks. When I did, he said he was certain the guy didn't mean any harm and was just playing around. You know, your husband might have been well-meaning in that moment, thinking that that was going to soothe you, but to anybody whose instinct is to do that when somebody reveals that they've been traumatized. Listen to them and validate what it is that they're feeling. That's what that person needs in that moment. Don't try to change them. Witness what it is. Be a witness for what it is that they're feeling because that's what that person needs because they feel so alone in that moment. Various times throughout my life, I have tried to make friends with someone only to find out that they only wanted sex from me. When I said, when I said no, they stopped being my friend. Uh, she's also been physically and emotionally abused. Last year, my current partner had a major depressive episode. Uh, and she, my partner, although I was married to a man, I met my current partner eight years ago and now identify as lesbian. She, my current partner, physically assaulted me by slamming me into a wall, choking me, twisting my arms and shoving me to the ground three times as well as weeks later threatening to do it again if I ever argued with her. Long, long story. We owned a business and had to talk. Complicated story. Since, she has received counseling and therapy and we have reconciled. Since the focus was on why she did it, her depressed state, I did not receive any sympathy or space to express my experience. Her son was there at the time and so the conversation also was around how it affected him. I've done much work on my own to show myself the self-love I did not receive around this. Emotional abuse has occurred throughout my childhood, my previous marriage, my current relationship prior to her getting on meds and into therapy, and most recently a friend who took me in just after the physical assault and then did everything she could to try to manipulate me into starting a relationship with with her. I stayed strong, and when I finally had it in me to state an emphatic no, I really just wanted to be friends, she took her friendship away. Three other people I've tried to be friends with left me when they found out I was single. Any positive experiences with the people who have abused you? With my godfather, I've worked through that. With my loss of, quote, friends, it still hurts, and I choose to not try and make any friends. With my current partner, I have forgiven her completely, but I still often feel so broken away from her. I love her and want to be with her, but then something inside me comes up and I begin to have a small panic attack inside, and I have to pull away to feel safe. Uh, Darkest thoughts. Being molested by an older man, particularly a family member. Being a child whose father grooms her for sex. It gets me off every time. Darkest secrets. That is just it. 
I don't like to keep secrets. I'm okay with being an open book and sharing my story. Talking about it is healing and I might be able to reach someone else. It's just that no one even sees me and no one ever cares to hear. Everyone says how pretty I am, how pretty my smile is, how lucky I am that I tan so easily, but no one ever wants to hear my pain. Don't they see the sadness in my eyes? I want to hear from someone, wow, I can't believe you've made it through all that. No wonder it's hard for you to be, to feel free and express happiness rather than hearing, you're never happy, you're such a bitch, or you're so pretty, you should smile more. When somebody says, you're so pretty, you should smile more, you should say, you should consider doing less with your mouth. And say it in that awkward, (laughs) that awkward, awkward way that I just did. You should consider doing less with your mouth. That almost sound, that sounded like bad community theater, the way I said that. But seriously, um, I think all of us listening to, to what you've written see your pain. I just want to say how valid it is that you're, that you're feeling this way. Who wouldn't feel that way? And you deserve to be seen and you know I'm going to get up on my broken record soapbox and say I think a support group would be a great way because you would find people who know how you feel this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself when I grow up I aspire to be a fake doctor you can be a fake doctor right now you don't even have to grow up Uh, she has a variety of mental and uh, emotional struggles and trust issues. And she writes, Today I spent most of the day binging overcooked ramen noodles and marshmallow fluff, napping and reading uh, through a medical school pediatric textbook. After skimming through some of the book and carefully reading the rest, I decided to treat my inner child with proper dinner at the kitchen table without any distractions. After scooping a bowl of tuna tomato pasta empty, I stared at the bowl, greasy tuna flakes against the white porcelain or whatever the fuck dishes are made of, and it hit me clearer than ever. I was abused as a child. I grew up in an abusive household. What I went through was not normal. Parents aren't supposed to drag their kids out of bed by their limbs to yell at them for crying, to do the shit I went through. Parents aren't supposed parents are supposed to be loving and caring. It wasn't my fault in any way. It was my parents' fault. I'm not inherently a worthless piece of shit. It's just how my parents made me feel. Caring parents take care of their children, get help for them when they need it. My parents weren't caring. My parents weren't good parents. They were shitty and abusive. I broke down crying. I haven't been able to cry like that in years. So honestly, to really express the hurt inside that's been building up for way too long for one person to carry alone. I cried in front of an empty bowl when one of my two cats walked into the kitchen. I thought she was lured by the smell of tuna and was here to lick the bowl clean, but she walked past the table. She got next to me, laid on the floor with her back cute as fuck. She made the curr sound, her front paws on her face, and I smiled at her. The asshole knows that doing that makes me smile every time. Then I started laughing through my tears at my interpretation of my cat's cry for attention. I scratched her belly. She enjoyed the attention. I stopped crying. 
Smiling at my cat, I enjoyed the moment we were having while the realization of my fucked up childhood was still settling in. Oh God, I hate existing. Oh dear God, how I love existing. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I was giving some some good loving to uh, Christina's cat, Pablo, last night. I just love it when when we're we're curled up and Pablo comes up and uh, he loves to have his nose rubbed, which I guess is apparently unusual for cats. But he'll even let me rub my nose on uh, on his nose, and I just I just love it. I love like if we're laying on the bed and I'm be- and I'm between both of them. Um, it's just the best feeling. This is a shame and secrets uh, survey filled out by uh, a non-binary person who refers to themselves as uh, Jared. They are uh, a teenager, identifies bisexual. They were raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. There was an 18-year-old boy on the bus with me when I was 12. I don't remember the details. I think he touched my legs. He touched my hair and talked to me as if I were his age. He kept inviting me out with him, even pressuring me to sneak out. He made me uncomfortable and wouldn't stop trying to advance on me, even as I reminded him of my age. I have a vivid memory of him putting his hand under my skirt and penetrating me, but I'm not sure if this is real or fabricated. There was another boy closer to my age the next year on the bus who would touch my thighs, sides, stomach, and chest even when I'd tell him not to. He'd grab and hold my wrists as tightly as possible. Sometimes they bruised. Uh, They're not sure if they've been emotionally abused or physically abused. Uh, The friends I grew up with learned I would easily give in to fights if they hit me. I knew a girl who would yank my hair or slam her fist in between my shoulder blades if she didn't like what I was doing or saying. Yeah, I would say that that is uh, physical and emotional abuse. When I moved away, I had developed a bad flinch and feared turning my back to people. There was another girl who I knew and grew up with for almost 10 years, but she pushed me to eat less, convinced me I was uglier, less likable, fatter, etc. than her. I felt supremely inferior and constantly needed her acceptance and approval. It made me insanely anxious to even be near her because I couldn't bear disappointing her. Any positive experiences with these people? Of course. These were still some of my best friends, people I grew up around and admired. I love them dearly, and it's hard to admit they hurt me. I still think I'm exaggerating all of it. What you described is flat-out fucking abuse and really fucked up. And to me, no matter how awesome they were the rest of the time, treating somebody like that is a fucking deal breaker for a healthy relationship, in my opinion. Uh, Darkest thoughts. I've thought about mutilating my own genitals. I have thought about doing things that would put me in the hospital and would gain me sympathy. I'm jealous of people who lose friends and family, who go through great tragedy or abuse or trauma. I want the attention and sympathy that would bring. You don't have to go through those things to be seen and feel love and compassion from people. It's so much easier to just find those people than to sit in fantasy about getting hurt. 
and winding up in the hospital. I know it's easier said than done, but there is so much support out there. The challenge is really taking that first step and asking for help. Darkest Secrets. I have and still do cut, bite, and scratch myself to relieve pain. I used to hit and fight back to my violent friends and think it was okay. I used to act emotionally and physically harmful on purpose because it made me less scared. I pull out my hair, eyebrows, eyelashes, pubic hair without thinking about it. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could stop being so angry, even if it doesn't come out all the time. It's always under the surface, and I hate it. I want that anger to stop because it makes me scared of myself. My opinion is it's your body saying, hey, we got to change something. And don't shame yourself for feeling anger. Let it inspire you to change something in your life, be it the friend's that you're letting in or what, whatever it is. But you know, I say it all the time. Nobody has ever shamed themselves into being the person they want to be. It's a hundred percent the opposite. It's unconditionally loving yourself. And that doesn't mean that we excuse when we, you know, we, self-justify stepping on other people's toes or hurting other people, but we can learn from it while still not beating ourselves up after the fact, after we've apologized or learned from it. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little upset and ashamed and guilty. I'm not sure if everything I've written is true, but I don't know if I want to admit that yet. I think I'm a little freer to, to talk about something some things I've never told anyone else. Thank you for sharing that. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Bruised Peach. And she writes, I was in my first 30 days sober visiting a friend out of state when I looked on Facebook and saw one of the guys who date raped me uh, was in a new relationship. I don't know what came over me, but After almost seven years after it happened, I decided to message him and confront him. I asked him if he remembered the last night we spent together, and I told him what I remembered him doing and how it made me feel. My heart pounded, and I was terrified for the response as I pressed the send key. And to my surprise, his answer was this. I am so, so sorry. I had no idea I made you feel that way, and even though I don't remember that night, I won't discredit how you feel. I'm with a woman I love so much now, and I would never want to hurt her like that. I don't expect forgiveness, but if there's anything, anything I can do to make things right, I want to. Tears of joy ran down my face, and I replied, thank you. The fact that he heard me out, didn't try to deny my experience or feelings, and wanted to make things right was more than I could have hoped for. And for the first time, I felt like I could have closure with Not only him, but every other person who had hurt me. That was two years ago. And now I'm sitting on my exercise bike waiting for my husband to wake up so I can make us breakfast. I went from being a suicidal, drug-addicted, alcoholic mess to a grateful, happy wife. It does get better. Wow. 
you know, to the people who fill out the surveys that I don't have the time to read on the podcast, thank you as well, because there's some awesome ones out there that I just don't have the time or energy to read on the podcast. But, you know, those help me understand humanity better, help, help me understand myself better, and honestly remind me that people care about me and the podcast, that they go through the time and effort to fill those out. And some of them are just such, it sounds cheesy to use the word, but gifts. You know, that one that ended the, the pre-interview section where that guy talked about tilting his, his wings. I mean, that was a piece of poetry. That, that guy should be a writer. If he's not writing, he should, he should start because, wow, that was one of the most poignant things I think I've, I've ever read. Anyway, I hope you got something out of this episode, and I hope if you're out there and you're struggling and you're feeling alone that you, that you realize that you're not alone and that help is out there if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and start seeking it. And it may not happen right away, and it may not come in the form that you want, but if you keep seeking it, the universe, I believe, meets us halfway. That's been my experience. And I am a professional jackass. So you too can be a professional jackass if you put your mind and your ass to it. This has taken a terrible turn. Uh, I'm going to put on my admiral gear and, and bid you adieu as I sail for the new world. And you are not alone. And I thank thee for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.